0: There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen.
1: Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee. And today I'm joined by Dr. Brandy Pierce for part four of our high impact teaming series. Can't believe we are this far in. And today we're joined by Christina Ma, full-time MBA class of 2001. Welcome to the podcast, everyone.
2: As we get started, it'd be great to just hear a little bit about you, where you're from, your background, and um, perhaps what brought you to Berkeley Haas and what you really value about having had the opportunity to be a part of the Berkeley Haas community, both as a student and now you serve on our board.
0: Sure, I'm originally from Taiwan. I was born in Taiwan, but we left Taiwan when I was quite young. We went to Norway for a few years and I uh, went through grammar school there and then we ended up in the U.S. And I was in the U.S. for my formative years in terms of schooling, graduated from college there and then decided that I wanted to come back to Asia because of opportunities, bit of wanderlust, and just wanting to explore in general. So came out to Hong Kong um, in 98 and was here during the Asian financial crisis. But now, these days, you kind of have to identify which crisis you're <laughs> talking about. <laughs> so it was the Asian financial crisis. And, uh, you know, ended up I was a prop trader at one of the securities funds and security houses, and then ended up at one of the first hedge funds in Hong Kong. But because of the crisis, the uh, fund basically faced redemption and and very quickly sort of lost its value. So I very quickly then thought about, okay, what should I do next? And um, because I had studied international relations politics, thinking I was going to be a diplomat, but then ended up in finance I thought, okay, an MBA would be good for me, getting some of the finance classes and accounting, et cetera. So I looked across at uh, a lot of different programs, the traditional East Coast programs, and then as well as some on the West Coast, partially because I was keen to go get back to California and that's where my family was at the time. But part of it was also obviously, you know, Berkeley's reputation or some of the strong schools in in the Bay Area. And I think at the time it was also, I think the start of the tech bubble, the first tech bubble again. (laughs) (laughs) So being on the West Coast was a real draw. And so I applied to Berkeley and the other unnamed school in the (laughs) Bay Area and uh, was very happy I ended up at Berkeley. And it's quite funny because I was, uh, I think at the time, you know, I'd just been in finance for three years and I wasn't done with finance. I really Unlike other people in school that I met who were looking for a career change, what I was looking for was really to further my skill set or to to add to my skill set in order to go further in my career. I wasn't looking for a career change at the time. When I got to Berkeley in '99, and I I think I, I got there a little early. And I had been accepted at two places, one on the East Coast, one at sort of the, again, the traditional finance schools and then Berkeley. But my job ended up in Hong Kong a little, winded up a little earlier. So I was able to spend some time at home and I went up to Berkeley. And again, it was during that first tech bubble and the energy and the buzz around the Bay Area and particular on campus was just amazing. It was electrifying. It really sort of drew you in. So I decided I wanted to stay in Berkeley and I've never regretted it. It was an amazing two years. The people that I met in terms of the types of people, the variety, both international and domestic, the industries and stuff. It's not something that I think I could have outlined. You know, you read the glossy brochures and you say, oh, okay, that's (laughs) great. That's great. And certainly one of the big draws for me for choosing Haas was that the program was slightly smaller and it was high on sort of the diversity factor, whether it was ethnicity or from a gender perspective. But I don't think any of that, the brochures, all the market, material is wonderful. But I don't think any of that really did it justice. I got there and, and really uh, was drawn in immediately by the professors as well as the students. And, and like I said, I got there, I think, before school started. And I was able just to kind of hang around because I was really trying to make my final decisions and stuff. And the students and, and just being around the campus just got me and put the, so the East Coast school away and then committed to Haas. And like I said, it was a wonderful two years.
2: It's really interesting to think about this idea that you were here in 2001, I guess probably 2001 to 2003 or so, before we had our. Actually, 99 to. 99 01. to. 99 01. Encapsulated our defining principles. And I, I am a little bit curious from your perspective as you think about the defining principles that we now embody and we've actually articulated in a more kind of explicit way. Do you feel like those were still? in the orbit and in the environment at that time? Very much so. In fact, it's funny, I think the last board meeting that I was
0: able to attend in person, which was beginning of this year, and at the end of January, they were talking about the defining principles. And I remember sitting there thinking, God, why do we even need to define it?
1: It's so obvious.
0: (laughs) It just seems so ingrained to me. But, you know, of course, as with all things, you do have to Put words a pen to paper and and outline the the few highlight the key ones that you believe in. But I think all the principles that have been outlined and discussed were very much I, I feel like part of the ethos and the fabric of the school even back in ninety nine. The the sort of commitment to diversity, the the entrepreneurship, etc. I mean, all of those were definitely there. And, and it's funny because I was at Berkeley when they had the, I think I was part of the organizing committee for the second business plan competition. And being just part of that organizational committee and just seeing all the different business plans, seeing the pitching process, all that stuff still goes on. And obviously to a much sort of higher degree or even intense degree now, but all of that stuff existed at Berkeley or at Haas then. And so all the defining principles feels very familiar to me. And I'm glad to see that the character and the things that the school identifies um, itself uh, or with has remained consistent and really been more clearly articulated and sharpened over the years.
2: Yeah. It's nice to have it explicit, but it is interesting to think about the fact that it has been a part of our fabric for a long time and something that connects us across the years as students come and go and go out into the world. And one of the things that you have done in service of Berkeley Haas is is joined our board. I think you've been on the board for a little over a year. And I'm curious what inspired you to take on that role and some of the things that you hope to see in terms of Berkeley um, Haas and its growth areas that are on your mind.
0: I had such a wonderful time at Haas, honestly, that I really wanted to stay in touch with the school. I just thought it did so much with so little in terms of you know being a public institution and, and versus some of the private schools that had the big endowments and stuff that I, I really wanted to give back to the school. So I started out small, honestly. Um, you know, when we when I graduated, I started out just donating money, but very small amount because you know you come out of MBA, you, you got debt and student loans and all that sort of stuff. But I was fairly consistent throughout the years, and also I think I stayed in touch with the school. So funny little sort of journey was uh, Dean Lyons, former Dean Lyons, was my finance professor at school. And so I had stayed in touch with him. And then a few years later, he ended up at Goldman as our learning officer. And he was based in New York, but he actually came out to Asia a couple of times. And we got a chance to chat. And and so we stayed in touch throughout the time. And then when he went back to Haas to be the dean, Obviously, continue to stay in touch. And then I think at that time, he then formed the advisory committee, or DAC, Dean's Advisory Committee. And so um, he was kind enough to ask me to join, which is really nice. And I joined and, again, stayed in touch with the school as well as him and and the organization over the years. I think there was probably a period of sort of five or six years where I didn't go to the Bay Area and I wasn't near the campus at all. So it was all sort of virtually It because at the time, I was already in Asia. And so this is all done via phone calls, emails, whatever. And then uh, I think, again, throughout the years, I've I've gotten more interested in education and, and serving on boards and stuff. And when the opportunity came up with the change in leadership, I think Anne wanted to just look at the board and add more international people, which I think that was the part that was surprising to me because when I was at Berkeley, at, at Haas, and, and certainly, even if i look at the demographic and stats throughout the years it, it was always a big representation of international students or students with international backgrounds so when i got asked to be on the board and this sort of explain the reason why and part of it was to introduce more international representation i mean obviously you know i was very excited but i was also quite i was a little surprised because i think that part of it was probably a bit lacking in terms of in a phrase international or perspective diverse of a perspective that Haas has, I think the board at the time didn't necessarily reflect that. So that's when I joined. And it's been great. I mean, it's unfortunately, we probably won't be able to meet in the foreseeable future because of COVID and travel restrictions and stuff. But I think being connected with the other board members, and again, seeing the wonderful range of alumni that Haas has produced, Whether tech entrepreneurs or people in finance or investments or just philanthropists, et cetera, has been really fun. And being able to spend some time with the other board members has been really
2: great. We really appreciate your service to that. I'm kind of curious on a personal note, in terms of just getting to know you a little, if you were to think about something that you're really passionate about that we might not see on your Vita or LinkedIn or in other readings and materials on you, what might that be? It's something that you feel really passionate about, well, I guess in terms of personal interests, I you know Hong Kong offers
0: something fantastic in terms of outdoor activity. So it's not a city that's associated with trail hiking or outdoor activity in general, because I think every picture that you see of Hong Kong is always the skyline and the urban setting. But having been here for as long as we have, Hong Kong is a beautiful green lush city. So one things that we do a lot of as a family, and also before family, but now especially with kids is we do a lot of hiking, we do a lot of exploring around Hong Kong. I spend a lot of time trying to surf. And I say trying because it's not yet a skill that I feel like I've mastered, but maybe it's just as an anecdote to my best job is that when I have free time, a lot of it, a lot of times we just prefer to spend it outdoors. So anyway, yeah. so whether hiking, swimming, surfing, etc., that's, I suppose that's, you know, where we try to put extra time in.
1: That's exciting. I just started learning how to surf again the second time around. <laughs> and I, I just love being out on the water. It's just so serene out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's the only time when you're not distracted. I mean, no matter how good you try to be during your normal day, there's there's always something buzzing. There's always something happening. And, and when you're out on the water, it's truly one of the few times when you can just put everything aside and just sit there and enjoy the sound of the waves, the feel of the water, et cetera. So it's very Zen. For, it's my meditation as post-action meditating.
1: Same here. For me, it's meditation plus a form of masochism, <laughs> where... As an entrepreneur, I remember one of the lessons my my instructor, you know, it was a really rough day with the waves and I was just getting tossed around. And I think he was a little worried. He's like, are you okay? I was like, I'm having a great time. I relish these moments where, you know, the ocean just, you know, is dominating me because I realized, well, you know this. This is nothing compared to entrepreneurship. <laughs> you know, just,
2: metaphor just keep for getting life, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe a metaphor for 2020.
1: <laughs> but you know what? After you get tossed enough times, you stop getting tossed,
2: or you stop noticing you're being tossed.
1: <laughs> exactly, and you become one with the water. And that's the moment I really relish to get to that skill level where I just feel one with the water. So, I'm excited to hear that you're surfing.
0: <laughs> always a student, never a master.
2: That's right.
1: Student always.
2: Yeah, exactly. Student always. You also mentioned you have children. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And love to know a little bit about your background. Sure,
0: I have two mm-hmm. girls. They're ten and twelve, and I'm very happy about having two girls. I think because I I had a brother, but I remember my mom is one is, is part of a big family, and she has one out of five sisters. Mm-hmm. And when we were little, and in Taiwan, whenever we get together for holidays, in particular Chinese New Year, you know, they would the sisters would run upstairs lock the doors and the kids would be outside banging on the door. But they would go in there, share those secrets, latest purchases, just talk <laughs> and catch up. And I just remember there was a and, and she also had two brothers. They didn't do that with the brothers, that the, the brothers were left out. So it was just with the sisters. So I was always very envious of having a sister sibling relationships. And again, funny enough, my husband is part of a big family. His dad is one out of seven boys and All those seven boys had lots of kids. So I was sure I was going to have a little bald McFarland boy with a, you know, (laughs) because they're all bald and their family is all very round and very bald. But so I was very (laughs) excited to find out that I was going to have a girl. And and again, when I was um, going to have a second girl. So it's been a lot of fun. It's a lot of challenges, obviously, I think, you know, but the one thing is having support from you know the family and, and obviously having... Being fortunate enough to have the infrastructure here in Asia has allowed me to work whilst being a mom. And I think that is one of the biggest things that women face, whether in the U.S., mm-hmm. Europe, or even here. I think in Asia and certain parts of Asia, again, we're fortunate enough to have some easier access to childcare, home care, where it allows us to continue to work. But even if you have help, it's still difficult because there's always the the guilt involved. Am I spending enough time at school with them? Did they see enough of me? Et cetera, et cetera. But it's been fun. I would never have it any other way. And only regret is not having more. (laughs) I say that now. I did not say that 10 years ago. It all depends on where you're at. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I've,
2: three girls myself. And so it's interesting, because I think for me, in many ways, so much of what I've learned over the years, particularly related to teaming, in many ways, has been informed as well from raising my children, and that dynamic and learning to lead in a family environment and pulling them together. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, how has motherhood informed you as a leader? Or has it? I think sometimes it's the other way around. So (laughs) as I'm managing my
0: teams, right? And I think about how I communicate with my girls
2: and they squabble
0: as most siblings do, right? Or or they get upset or whatever it is. And then I think about, okay, did I outline my expectations in the right way? Did I clearly communicate to them what it was that I wanted or what I was uh, hoping for? And then there's just hormones and everything else that's happened. But I, I think it's a lot of it is around communication? Have I communicated that to them in the right way? And, and have I been transparent enough? And I think that tension or that observation goes back and forth. And I think about that all the time with my team and projects, because the teams that I've managed over the years, has always been cross country, cross border, across different time zones. So it takes a lot of coordination to make sure that the team is all focused on the right thing. And I think when we've had issues so when we had failures or you know setbacks i should say it, it more often than not is is really because of a lack of communication or not for the lack of trying but maybe the clarity of it how it was communicated and you know was it was it frequent enough etc so i think communication has been key and just back to sort of the kids and stuff i think i i the frequency in which you have to communicate and not just with kids, but I think even with, with teams is I myself am not necessarily the most sort of gregarious, verbose person. I am not someone who is particularly chatty. And uh, what I've learned as a manager or as a mom is I have to talk more than probably what I'm <laughs> inclined to do. Because again, a lot of this is reinforcement, saying it in different ways, making sure that, you know, they really can hear you. Because just because I think I'm clear doesn't mean that they actually understand what I'm saying and what I really want them to do. So it's trying to figure out different ways of conveying the same thing so that they actually understand what it is that that you need or you want.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the things I've noticed in being a mom in terms of how it's related back to how I've evolved over time is that With our children, we get immediate feedback. With our teams, that feedback might be delayed. (laughs) So we learn very quickly as we go. So one of the things I'm really curious about, you've been leading teams actually in Asia for many years. A, a, A large portion of your experience has been leading in this part of the world. Currently, you work for Goldman Sachs based out of Hong Kong. And you alluded to this idea that you've been leading teams that are culturally diverse and also geographically distributed. And I'm curious, what's intrigued you about leading teams of this nature? And what are some things you've learned along the way?
0: I think partially because of how I grew up is I've always imagined myself working in an international setting or with teams that spanned across borders. I think that the the sort of surprises, the differences and stuff, it wasn't something that I shied away from. In fact, it's something that really, you know, it is something that's always drawn me. I, I like learning about new things, new perspectives and things like that. But I think in terms of what I've learned from, uh, you know, managing different teams, whether functionally, culturally, nationality wise is. Again, the clarity around communication—you have to make sure that you know you do clearly articulate uh, what it is that you want, and sometimes that requires maybe multiple, multiple reiteration of what it is—the uh, message that you're trying to convey. But I think even more importantly is listening, and you really have to listen uh, to people, and listen in different ways because. I think North Americans or or Americans in particular or even sort of some Europeans, I think they culturally because of, of the way they've grown up and what they've been taught in school, you know, they're they're generally not afraid to speak up or, or have been encouraged to speak up and to voice their views and opinions even if it's something different versus what you find a lot in Asia is it's the sort of notion of conformity and group and not sticking out and, and stuff. So it is very different when you're managing a group here where a lot of times you really have to draw out the answer, right? I'll often be in a meeting where Will say stuff, and, and, and I'll have to wait. And, and I think it's taken me a long time, and I'm still not good at this. But having the patience to wait for the right answer, or, or having the patience to wait for people to find the right way for them to verbalize what it is that that they feel, I think that's been really important. And like I said, I'm still learning because uh, you know I'm not the most patient person in the world, and especially in, in the part of the business that I, that I was in and trading and everything. Everything is about speed, and you have to react. And, and stuff. So you don't necessarily have a lot of time to wait for someone to give you, to answer you. And so drawing that out in the right way and making sure that the team feels comfortable to verbalize something to you, uh, especially in a high stress environment. So I suppose, you know, listening and then also ultimately building the trust amongst the team that when they are communicating to you is that it will be taken in a constructive manner, etc. And again, I I take it back to the trading desk where at, at a certain point, the market doesn't care if you're a managing director, or if you're a little analyst two years out of school, like the market is the market, and then stocks move as they are. So sometimes you have to listen to the junior member of the team because they notice something that you don't, and and you have to make sure that they feel confident enough that they can speak up and say to someone like myself that, hey, this is wrong. You got to look at this, and 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 so on and so forth. But but building that trust amongst the team that they can say stuff to you that maybe might feel a little bit hard, or or telling a senior person that they're wrong is important. So I suppose listening and also having the trust amongst the team that they can highlight and base something to you.
2: Is there anything that you do in just your practice as a leader to encourage members to speak up or to feel confident in questioning the status quo or pushing on an idea, no matter where they sit in the organization?
0: I think it's just making sure that they feel the comfort that no matter what they highlight is that it will be taken in a constructive manner and it won't be dismissed. I don't know how to describe that in a better way. Again, in, in Asia, because it tends to be a little bit more hierarchical culture is that People are afraid to raise things to senior person. So what I do when I can and I try to do this consistently throughout the year is I, I spend individual time with people. I spend time with my leaders, the leaders side that I rely on on managing teams, but I don't just spend time with them, but I also spend time with the fresh grad that's come in from college or the guy we've hired from, you know, competitor, etc. I think it's important f- for them to feel that I'm accessible. I mean not so accessible that they're in my office every day or talking to me every day, but I'm, but I'm accessible and that they can raise something to me. Again, if they see something that's wrong and it's that they feel empowered to talk about it and to raise it. So, I suppose it comes down in the day-to-day, the sort of the the time spent with people and the fact that no matter how many people I'm managing is that I'm also still directly talking to the troops so that you can get unfiltered information so they feel like they have access to you so that, in again, in the event of something going wrong, is that they feel like they can call you up and, and raise it.
2: It's interesting in terms of thinking about your role. One of, one of the unique parts of what you're doing and what you've done for many years is you've been leading in Asia, in this region, but Goldman itself is based out of New York And I'm curious what that experience is like leading uh, a team, a regional team in a part of the world that's so distant from headquarters.
0: I won't lie. It is challenging. And I think our firm, Goldman, does a very good job of trying to make sure that it's not so New York centric and, you know, you have that feeling. But I think, you know, the fact of the matter is some of our largest businesses are based in New York. Some of our, most of our leaders, at least C-suite are, are US-based, et cetera. So again, it comes back to communication and making sure that you're communicating uh, consistently with New York. And I would say it's not just myself or Asia to New York, but it also happens in a more micro level even here in the region because we have two hubs in Asia. It is Hong Kong and Japan. Japan is a little bit more of a Japan-centric business versus Hong Kong, which obviously covers the region. So I find myself dealing with the reverse of that as I'm managing teams in in Taiwan and China and in previous years in Korea and Singapore and how they feel like they're distant from the Asia hub. And then obviously one step removed from uh, the U.S. hub. But again, it comes down to making sure that you communicate with your leaders and the communication is done on a frequent basis and consistent basis. Because I think one of the things that happens when you're in a regional office is when you have a manager that's just two doors down from you, you can go in there every day, twice a day, five times a day, whatever. And you just chat and things come up as you chat, things that you didn't think was a big deal. But, you know, as you're talking or conversing, you'll find that, oh, maybe this is an issue for my team in uh, China is also an issue for the team down in India, whatever. So you pick up on stuff because you have that, that, that regular dialogue. I think what happens with someone like us sitting here in Asia and, and having the, the hub office or the headquarters in the US is sometimes you feel like, okay, is this important enough for me to highlight to my manager if I only have time once a week or whatever else to speak to them, whatever that frequency might, might mean. So I think we sometimes are probably a bit shy in terms of highlighting stuff. That's important or that people can feel a little bit reticent to do that. But again, I think it just comes down to how you have managed that dialogue or where I suppose that relationship with your manager Were there has to be a trust, there has to be that consistency, and there has to be that regularity of the communication, the transparency in that so that you can make sure that you keep in touch and you stay abreast of, on what's happening in US, wherever your headquarter is, so that you can also help your team here in the region.
2: I'm curious, as you think about working with these teams across these cultures, they're regionally proximal in Asia, but they're quite distinct in terms of how their cultures play out, the political environments in which they're embedded. And I'm curious how that, does that ever emerge in your teams in terms of differences or challenges that are related to some of these cultural distinctions?
0: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I managed the greater China equities team, but greater China, actually there's, there's a lot of distinct regions within that, right? And um, just, you know, there is differences even within the teams in China in terms of the teams in Beijing that I manage versus the team in Shanghai versus the team in Shenzhen. So I think that's the, probably one of the toughest parts about sitting in my seat, but also probably one of the most interesting is that again, when one size does not fit all, I think you have to always tweak a little bit as to the population that you're manage. But that's also the the sort of fun of it. So I think as long as you're aware of it and you're conscious of it and you adjust for that distinction, I think it works. But it, it does take a little extra work on a manager's part, of
1: course. I'm really curious having grown up in Taiwan, then moving to Norway, then coming to the US how did you adjust what were the challenges for adjusting back to Asia after Berkeley?
0: When we moved as kids, there wasn't any preparations that you could do, right? I mean, it was a bit of, you know, you sort of thrown into the fire and you, into the, the ocean and you learn how to swim and, and that's that. It's funny when I go back and forth from the U.S. to Asia, and I guess Hong Kong, because we still have family in the U.S. So when we go back and it's little things like uh, physical space, in the US you're used to a lot of personal space in between people in Asia. If you don't squeeze in there right in front of the, the person in front of you, you know, there'll be people who cut because not not because they cut, but they think that you're not in line, right? So this this little things like that. But I think in terms of interaction again in the US you can take what people tell you much more at face value as in if they tell you something 89% of the time that is the message and that is what they're trying to convey it's just a little bit more direct way of communicating versus in asia i think again there's a lot of subtlety depending on rank depending on you know the how long have you known a person how big of a setting is it and it just takes more patience and more time sometimes to get to what it is that my client is concerned about or my team is concerned about, whatever that might be. So it really is to be more patient and and really you got to listen for what they're saying, but also what they're not saying and being able to read between that line. And I find that I have to be a little bit more sensitive and, and, and nuanced in not only how I speak to people, but also in how I gather information because again, it's not always that clearly delivered. Um, and you know, just just takes more time. That's
1: all. I admire that because you know, I, I similarly moved away from China when I was six, and I can't imagine now going back to Asia to go lead a team there. But I think your advice is is very on point in how I would reasonably go about doing that if I had to. So thanks for sharing that.
2: I was just curious, as I'm listening to you talk, the term that comes into my mind is this idea of broker, that you have lived in all of these unique environments and led in different places. And I'm wondering, do you see that as a skill that a leader might need? as they work across these different environments?
0: Oh, sure. I I think being able to lead and to work with people across different cultures and countries, I I think that is something that is not easy. There's some people who are just better at it, right? Better at drawing out the differences and better at drawing out the messages, I think. I don't have a magic wand or any secret method, aside from just really, again, practicing the, the listening and communication skills that we've talked about. I am, as I said earlier, I'm not the most patient person. <laughs> Certainly in my old job, that was not something there was a value to the speed of reaction, the speed of transactions. So being able to then toggle between what the needs of your job is at that particular moment and then also what you need to do as a manager in you know, outside of the trading hours and stuff that part of it and being able to switch back and forth i think that was quite necessary. And now, again, in my new role where I spend a lot of time with clients thinking about uh, bigger picture strategic stuff, my role went from being very much about every minute, every tick, every sort of movement in in a stock or within a particular universe of stock to now talking to various C-suites about what their long-term plans are for build out in Asia, particularly in China, et cetera. Being able to switch back and forth between those timelines and also between the different clients thats you have to be mindful of that and and thinking about it. So, again, back to sort of the listening and the communication part.
2: So one of the things I wanted to tap into is in one of your blogs that you a career blog that you wrote as part of the Goldman career I think development plan. I don't know what it, what was that blog. Yeah, I
0: think it was five things I'd I wish I'd known. A letter to my younger self. That's what it was.
2: One of the things that you said in this letter to your younger self is the importance of making a distinction between being passionate versus being emotional. And I was curious if you could share a little bit about what that means to you and how you think about those distinctions. Sure. I think passion is something that
0: that is important, right? I mean, it's, it's almost a buzzword these days, but I think it's important and certainly something that I believe in. I think, you know, especially in a job like or in an industry like ours, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of tension, there are high stakes because there's lots of, you know, people's monies are uh, on the line. And it's very rewarding. It's really fun. It's interesting, but it can also be stressful. So my view is always, you know, you have to have passion for and, and you have to be interested and be passionate about what it is that you do because otherwise it just seems a job. Then it becomes dreary as opposed to a career and, and something that has upside and forward. But passionate does not mean emotional. So emotional to me means just reacting to something and, and I suppose to a certain extent take things personally. So, I mean, that's that was one of the things that I was told by one of my managers early on in my career where I was coming up for promotion and I was bitterly disappointed at that it hadn't come about that year. And we were having one of our catch-ups, and I was so upset by it. And you know, and David um, said to me, "Christina, you really have to—you have to be able to take the emotion out of it." I mean, clearly, it's—it's it's great that you care so much and you're so passionate about it. But if you can't take your own emotion and your own sort of reaction and your the emotion up and down, it's hard to think about things in a clear manner. And, and so. That's what I always think about when I'm in a situation is I can care deeply about something, but I can't let little things affect me and affect how my mood or my emotion or whatever that day. And even and if I do feel emotional, I need to take a step back because being an emotional in a tense environment or, or as it relates to a project or whatever is actually not very productive being passionate about something is productive because that allow you the passion allows you to push through the obstacles and the hurdles that you might face but being emotional means that you know you, you let yourself get angry you let yourself get frustrated you let yourself get whatever sad whatever it is and i find that those things often get in the way of the end goal which is getting that project done or getting that that, that trade done or whatever that might be
2: Had this conversation with one of your mentors, and at a time when you were feeling more emotional. And I'm just curious about your own development over time as a leader, how you've been able to create that emotional regulation that supports you and being able to dig into your passion but to stay grounded in in what you're working on accomplishing. Sure. Actually, I think back at that
0: conversation a lot. uh, And I think back at what his words a lot, because again, as I'm trying to build out a a team in a market that's very exciting, but very challenging. I mean, China will always challenge you, (laughs) but it is to not let myself get frustrated, but to focus on the task at hand, but to have the passion, perseverance, and tenacity to continue to get through it. And if things happen along the way, is for me not to let those things get the best of me, i.e. again, the frustration, the anger, or whatever else. So I remember the conversation at the time, and this must have been probably, gosh, 10 years ago. And I thought back at that conversation more and more. In the last few years. So I think maybe it's the sign of me getting slightly more mature and being slightly more aware, growing in my role as a leader. But I think it's those words ring more and more true to me. And I try to draw on that because I also think back and look at the times when I've allowed myself to get emotional, I've allowed myself to get angry, I've allowed myself to send snappy emails, or I allowed myself to have a few words that makes me feel better. But in the end actually ends up with a worse result or ends up with me having to spend more time to recover that relationship or recover from that sort of outburst of, of anger. So it's the sort of short term satisfaction of, okay, well, I've just, you know, I've let loose, I feel better. <laughs> but then a month down the line realizing that hmm, those guys are maybe not as responsive as I like them to be because maybe they didn't like getting yelled at over email or whatever it <laughs> So I think it's not any sort of Zen moment. It is really continually a work in progress of me learning to rein back my reaction, the immediate reaction, because that's more often Time, the emotional reaction versus the okay, what is a more measured and constructive response to that challenge or that conversation or issue that they brought up?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because as we think about teaming and kind of the evolution of teaming, particularly in these more dynamic and complex environments, one of the things I'm curious about is this concept of socio emotional intelligence and in teams has really taken hold. This idea that we want to be able to recognize emotion, but also to be able to self-regulate emotion inside of a team. And I'm curious, you've shared a little bit about what you've done as a leader to build that capacity in yourself. And I'm wondering, is that a capacity that you intentionally build in your team's
0: I encourage it because I think I can see that some of the mistakes that I made, again, being emotional, getting caught up in the moment is also some of the things, I mean, it's a common fallacy, right? It's something that happens across the board. So I try to you know, convey that and, and to let people or to encourage people to, again, don't take things personally. This is not meant to be a personal attack at you. It's just people are, are want the best for the product, for the team, whatever it is. So I Try to encourage it. I'm not sure that I'm that explicit about things, and it was funny because I think when we did that little blurb of the letter to my younger self, I think that you know that I had a lot of nice emails and comments. But the sort of my line about be passionate but not emotional was probably the one comment that people came back to me on because unless you articulated in that way, I'm not sure that people uh, really. Think about it in that way. And, and again, I can't take credit because it was, you know, one of my mentors, managers who, who said that to me. But I think um, it's very valuable because then it allows you to take yourself a little bit out of sort of the heat of the moment and allows yourself to cool down. So I try to convey that, that concept to people, but it's, I I don't know if there's a good way of teaching. It's just more of, okay, in in this moment or in that conversation, maybe you should have phrased it in a different way. Maybe you should have been a little less specific or whatever it might be. But anyway, I I find that I'm probably still some, I need to talk to myself about it more often than I need to talk to other people. So at the end of it, I think I I
2: tend to be quite an emotional and heated person. So I use that phrase on myself quite a bit these days. It's an interesting time because I think emotions are generally, because of the context in which we're operating, are sitting on the surface. And it is a moment where even as I'm out in the world, I'm noticing people's regulation is becoming more and more marginalized, that they're struggling a bit more. I'm curious if you're noticing that at all in your teams, that people are more quick to be triggered or it's more challenging for them to regulate and and what that, how that might emerge or how that looks in an environment like yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think people's
0: patience are thin, right? I mean, they're dealing with schooling their children at home. They're dealing with going back and forth from work. Sometimes some weeks they're at work, some weeks they're, we're not at work. And, you know, the spiking cases, the not spiking cases, going out, but having to watch where you're touching, going all the time. So the the constant heightened tension and stress that COVID has brought us for all of us, I think, has definitely drawn on people's reserves. So for sure, I'm seeing it play out and, and certainly and from the team and also with projects and delays and whatever else. But again, I give a lot of credit to the guys I've managed. I think they've weathered this crisis extraordinarily well. And uh, I think I have to not remind myself, but I think what I try to do is to recognize that sort of strain that they're living under and the additional stress and acknowledge that because I do think that people do appreciate. I mean, everyone knows, again, we're all living in this environment and stuff, but it is nice to know that your manager noticed. And it's nice to know that your manager understands that you have gone the extra mile in order to deliver a service that is consistent with what you delivered last year. But being able to deliver that level of service actually takes. 20, 30, 40, 50% more effort. So I try to acknowledge uh, the ordinary that my team has done. And, and of course the extraordinary, but I, I, I find myself spending more time and certainly I try to make be mindful of it of spending more time acknowledging people and sending my appreciation and my thanks because I do think that it's important, especially in this environment, to tell people that they're doing a great job. They're doing a phenomenal job juggling sort of three three different things, being a parent, being a teacher, (laughs) being an employee called the facts. One extra job that you didn't have to have before and thank God for teachers and God bless them, we really don't pay them enough. so, yeah, I think that's, I suppose that's the one thing I, I try to, you know, do is just to I acknowledge their efforts and, and also, you know, once in a while, encourage them to have a little bit more patience and take a moment because, it, again, the this sort of crisis has definitely drained people's reserves and understandably so.
2: One of the things that I'm fascinated by is you've had such a unique leadership trajectory in terms of being educated in the U.S. and then going and leading in Hong Kong in this region for a organization based out of the U.S. And a lot of our listeners are developing leaders. And I'm curious, what is it about some of your experiences that you think have prepared you for this role, the role that you have now?
0: I think, again, having sort of the tenacity and an interest and re- reusing a word passion for what it is that you want to pursue. I-, I think if I hadn't had that interest in whether the markets or being in Asia or having an international career, the easiest thing to do would have been, you know, to follow a bit more of a, a traditional tra- career trajectory. I got my college degree in the US and East Coast, go back to the West Coast, find a job, etc. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think, again, because of the way I grew up, I think there was a strong desire in me to pursue a career that had an international element of it. So I think as I look at our younger people or the young people on my team is, I find that everyone just does the job better when they're actually interested and in they actually have a genuine interest or, or a passion about it. So I think you know, there's some things that you have to do just because it's a rite of passage or, you know, there may be times in your life when you just have to do a job because it puts food on the table and gets you money and it, it sort of gets you through through life. But I think, you know, where possible, the key for people is to work or do something or pursue something that they have a genuine interest in because then that, it just always brings out the best in people. It makes it that seem that much less of an effort and it's your interest, it's, it's what you're, you want to do and you always end up putting in the extra mile. So I think the key is to
2: find what it is that, that you're
0: passionate and interested in and pursue that.
2: What is something you admire in a leader when you see it in action and why? I actually quite admire compassion because I think you think of
0: a leader, I mean, in sort of typical sort of alpha terms of, you know, leading the charge, running up the hill or or getting through sort of obstacles and stuff. But I think what makes a good leader is their ability to also connect with teams. It's soft, right? I I don't think that it's necessarily a a skill or a, a trait that you associate with a leader, because if you think, again, the more traditional form of or interpretation of leadership has always been more on the sort of aggressive, take charge, you know, side. But The managers that I've really enjoyed working with and the managers that I've enjoyed following actually have a very humane side to them. So they're able to empathize and feel and and engage with their team. That doesn't mean that they always give in to that emotion, but they can at least have the ability to see things from a different perspective. And I think that part of that ability really comes from their ability to have some sort of compassion. I,
2: I think that's something that I quite admire about a leader. It's interesting because we often tend to think of compassion and productivity as being in tension with each other and that those two things may not necessarily work in parallel or in, in concert, but in so many ways, as I'm listening to you, what you're saying is that compassion helps me connect to that person. It helps me voice what I want to share. And it allows me to hear them and for them to hear me, which actually links back to so many of the ideas that you've shared with us up front around the importance of listening and communicating and keeping your teams in alignment and helping to motivate them across all of these different boundaries. So thank you. It's wonderful to hear your thoughts and I really appreciate having you here.
1: This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Christina.
2: Great. Thank you. I enjoyed
0: it.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas Podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.